Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Friends at Future Primitive. This week we have a wonderful guest. His name is Peter Forbes. Peter Forbes is a farmer and a conservationist and an artist of imagery, written word, and carved wood. He is also a public speaker and facilitator a student of the relationship between land and people, he's worked throughout the world to record and protect our human relationships with the land. Peter's lifelong pursuit is to be a witness and a storyteller of the bond between people and the land and to translate what he has learned into a new form of leadership. Peter founded the Center for Whole Communities to do what he could to strengthen and connect movements for social and environmental change by looking deeply at the issues that divide us from one another and from the land. Peter's photography and essays have appeared in many books and journals. He is the editor of Our Land, Ourselves, Readings on People and Place, and he is the author of The Great Remembering, Further Thoughts on Land, Soul, and Society, published by Chelsea Green. His essays have also appeared in Coming to Land in a Troubled World. So I'll pick up on this last, um, on this last title of um, your essays. What this coming to the land in a troubled world means. And and yes, we are probably living in a troubled world in terms of land. Mm. Well, uh, you know, I think that all, everything that uh, I work on comes from my own personal journey one way or the other. And in many respects, I, I think I was saved by the land uh, as a young as a young boy, and I've probably been spending all of my adult life trying very hard to repay that kindness and to try to connect others to the land and and to one another. Um, and to join uh, a different kind of culture that's possible here in the here in the United States. So, for me, uh, coming to land in a troubled world is finding all the different ways to reconnect with place and and to reconnect with with one another. Okay. So, let's take your latest walk in the woods. 
what were you what were you exchanging with the land that you were in during your walk maybe yesterday or this morning mm, thank you for for asking that well i'm a farmer uh first and foremost so the, the walks that i've been doing lately are are walks uh to care for our our sheep and to see how our blueberries are doing as spring begins to unfold. We're about two weeks away from lambing. So uh, it's a time of enormous sort of fecundity where the, the freezing nature of the last uh, three or four months is, is giving way to mud and to the smell of the earth again and our sheep are so large that they're waddling along and um, I'm, I bring them hay and uh, just make sure that everyone is healthy as they're beginning um, their time of giving birth. So spring is felt here deeply right now and mm -hmm. that's always uh, one of my favorite times of the year when things are, are being born and then also in the late fall when things are dying, those those two moments of transition are uh, they're very enlivening for me, and I and I think for many other people. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this: um, so you live with the land, making making food together with the land, and and you live with the animals that live on your land. What is the fine line between cooperating with nature and controlling nature. What is that fine line? How do you how do you feel that? Well, here I think you can you can see it. Uh, when we arrived here for the first time uh, a dozen years ago, there were there were patches of bare earth in our pastures and the, the, there were places where the soil was very thin and uh, where even just an observation could tell you, could tell someone that the land wasn't as healthy as it could be. And there are a lot of different ways of, of going about restoring that health. And the way that we finally learned how to do was how to mimic nature and, and, use the animals uh, in a way that follows their natural uh, instincts of grazing. So the more we were able to graze them on this pasture and moving them every day, um, we actually began to see uh, the soil regenerate itself and we began to see more biological diversity in the plant species and and less areas of, of bare earth and and the health of the land began to restore itself um, and there are also times quite honestly when I haven't had the the native instinct where I felt the time and I've done something on my tractor that scarred the earth and you can still see that scar and we're still recovering. So I would say almost every day I refine 
that line between collaboration and, and control. Mm, I like that a lot. So back to the word scarring. So sometimes in your searching, in your living the relationship with the land, you created a wound that scarred the land. How does the how does the land heal compared to how we heal in our wounding? Wow, what a what a wonderful question. I, I don't know that I have a full answer for that. I, I think that I think that they're pretty much the same though. I mean that's my mm-hmm. my observation. You know, every one of us uh, every one of your listeners, you and I, everyone on this planet uh, began their life as a single cell. Mm-hmm. And now uh, I-, I believe there are some 300 trillion cells in each of our bodies. But what makes that interesting is of, of all those trillions of cells, they're actually in 270 different forms. Um, and what I'm getting at here mm-hmm. is that our, our bodies are made up of, of difference, of all these different kinds of cells uh, with different functions, performing different roles. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what enables my hand to heal when I cut it, or it's what keeps your body pH at a constant 6.8, or it keeps, when we're healthy, our temperature at 98.6. The same is true on the land. Um, the, the moment we begin to reduce the diversity that's on the land the, is the moment we reduce its ability to heal and its ability to, to continue in a healthy way. So both you know, we are, as Wendell Berry says, you know, we are the land and the land is us. But, but in a very scientific way, that is also true. Um, so we, as human beings, we are, I think, restored culturally when we interact with diverse human beings. Mm-hmm. And we are also restored um, biologically when we honor the diversity that's within our systems and all that is true you know of the land as well um it's why a monoculture forest is never healthy uh and why a monoculture of corn is never healthy the same same reasons beautiful thank you beautiful So I'm going to continue along those lines. Um, You have a talk about generosity and gratitude. So what can we learn uh, from the land and the animals that live on the land about generosity and gratitude, about expressing those things? practical, simple thing that, you know, all we really need to survive and to live uh, a happy, joyous life is there for us on the land. And I I can't imagine a a more generous 
thing, nor a more important thing to express our gratitude for. Uh, everything we need is is there, uh, and the story of how of our relationship <laughs> to that abundance is is the story of our culture, right? I mean, there. Mm-hmm. The whole story of, of oil is the story of, of wanting and taking more uh, than we need. And the story of living a, a more simple life within the means of the land is is the story of, of human life that has alternatively, you know, endured for for thousands and thousands of years. Um you know, our existence has uh, is due to to what the land gives us. So I, you know, I I can't express a gratitude more deeply than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, we yes. Go ahead. No, I I just I I think the more we remove ourselves from that land in, in whatever different ways we, we do it, you know, through technology or through the food we eat or the pace at which we lead our lives. The, the more we remove ourselves, the more we can actually believe that this world is of our own making. And, you know, therefore, <laughs> there, there doesn't need to be as much gratitude expressed because, you know, the planet isn't really that connected to us. You know, we created this. You know, we we are uh, we have a, ourselves to thank, and um, th- that would uh, that's very present, and I think it's also completely delusional. So, what do you say to people who live um, in a totally urban? environment, how to heal that fragmentation? Well, nature exists in urban environments as much as it exists in any other environment. Some of the people with the strongest land ethics and strongest relationships to land are are friends that I've met who live in the middle of cities. So to me, it's not about uh, the geography of where you live. It's about the level of care and attention that you have. Um, some of the greatest lessons I learned as a conservationist, I, I was taught by uh, city farmers in, in New York City, actually in, in central Harlem, where there may not be a lot of open space or wilderness uh, but there is a deep, deep abiding connection and relationship to the earth and the soil and the food. Um, and actually, I think some of the, the, the most positive, exciting things about our relationship to land here in the United States can be seen in cities where there are resurgence of rooftop gardens and, and uh, a real commitment to local food and you know there's a there are co-ops that are being designed in new york city right now that that have rooms set aside for community supported agriculture deliveries there's a there's a wonderful uh 
resurgence and reconnection to land. I think it's the suburbs that we really have to worry about, not not the rural area or the urban areas. It's it's those places in between that rely so much on a model of using the land that is exploitative. And that's those are the places that I think are going to be most impacted by the changes that come over the next 25 and 50 years. I just had this uh, image of uh, a very manicured lawn as a way to imprison the earth. I think that's a powerful, powerful vision. <laughs> you, you, you evoked, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you evoked that image in me. So I think that's a that's a great example of of uh, what you described earlier as control. Mm-hmm. Uh, control as an expression of of our relationship to place. Let's talk about um, your being a conservationist and um, uh, t- take a little journey and and tell tell us how your 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 vocation as a conservationist has evolved through the years and how you see yourself today as a conservationist. Well, that what a what a kind question to ask. <laughs> I. I, I really appreciate that, um, and I, I think my my views of what it means to conserve or to care for something have mm-hmm. changed uh, fairly dramatically as I've lived longer on this on this earth. Uh, when I was a young man, I I was fortunate enough to be exposed to some of the most beautiful, wild, uh, alive places in the world. Um, as as both a, a climber and a photographer, I uh, experienced rural and, and remote areas of Nepal, of Tibet, of South America, and just found inside of myself uh, this deep, deep love of of place. Mm-hmm. And and wild places, and as I uh, got to know those places a little bit better, I I also came to understand how those places were connected to people, and how people were connected to those places. And um, my my concept of what wild meant really really changed quite a lot. Um, I, I remember working in Nepal uh, in the late or early 1990s when a, a new area was being created as a, a national park and and recognizing that in order to create it as a national park, the, the people that I was living with and had really come to think of as my brothers and sisters mm-hmm. were either going to be removed from that area or have their own relationship with that place uh, curtailed in order to have these sort of Western views of what conservation means. And that bro- brought me a great sorrow uh, because as I 
was healed by my appreciation of those places and my own personal development was advanced by my experience of, of that wildness. Mm-hmm. I realized that you know there were people who lived there who for whom they were having the exact same experience and and that that's really been true all throughout human history um, and it is our human relationship the place um, that has created us and conservation can't be so much about protecting the place without also protecting the human connection to that place. Um, and I, I did come back to the United States. I began working professionally as a conservationist and, and not just in rural areas, but in cities as well. And, and I, I think the probably my strongest understanding is that if we really care today for care about the health of the planet and we care about species of life other than humans, <laughs> that the primary work that we in human, as humans can do is to focus on the relationship between people because it's the relationships between people that have caused the, the really at the heart of the of the destruction of our of our planet. So as a conservationist, I know many ways I've come full circle. You know, I, my my love of land, my love of diversity, my love of species has led me to actually work more with people and on culture. And because that is the largest impact on on this place and also the largest opportunity for for change uh, because we humans at our core are still tuned to that relationship mm. we still yearn for that relationship with place and with each other yeah. and it's that separation that's caused the destruction and the, the alienation and <laughs> the things that we were talking about before when we said a troubled world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one other thing I, I yes. might add to that is as I've grown a little older, I've seen that uh, for myself personally, I've yearned for a life in conservation even more than I have a, a career in conservation. And, and by that I mean I... I want my practice of everyday life, all the choices I make in my life, to be about conservation, not just what I do for work. And I see that as a a real challenge in our American culture that we can do one set of work and then potentially live a different kind of life. And I've benefited from some wonderful teachers who have urged me and challenged me to live the life that I most aspire to. Can you speak about uh, a teacher that uh, had um, or has uh, great meaning in your life? Thanks for 
mentioning that there there have been many. You know, I uh, also as I've grown a little older, I realize I I I'm not sure I want to be a global citizen. I I really want to be a New England citizen, and and maybe even more than that, I I want to be a Northern New England <laughs> citizen. In that, I I want to be rooted firmly in a particular place, and so the the teachers that I think of the most now are not far flung, although you know and I've benefited from many people all over the world who have whose writings I've read and maybe even meeting them have challenged me, but the, the, the folks that I think of the most at this point in my life are are my my fellow New Englanders, people like Dana Meadows, who uh, worked so hard to address international issues, but also live a very local life, you know, as, as a farmer and as a journalist. And I think very profound gratitude to my friend Bill Copperthwaite, who is a great Maine homesteader in the lineage of Helen and Scott Nearing, and how he has lived for 50 years this experiment in living that, that connects concepts of democracy and social justice and, and real deep abiding love of, of the earth. What is... Um food justice. I mean, that's a very, um, when I say those words, uh, I feel pain. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I feel. And so I, I'd like you to speak about um, solution in terms of food yeah. justice. country right now, we actually have more prisoners than we have farmers. Right. And in 200%, you say. 200% more prisoners than farmers. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that that says uh, pages and pages about where our culture is. And there are places, for sure, where that is changing dramatically, where young people are coming into farming, where people of all colors and means are demanding access to healthy food, where the soils themselves are being regenerated through healthier agricultural practices. I I think the dark era of our relationship to food in the United States, the darkest time of it is over. I'm very pleased to say there, I see the best and the brightest of, of young people going into agriculture here in my home state in Vermont, but but just the same throughout New England, throughout California, throughout the Pacific Northwest, through parts of the South and the Midwest, there is an undeniable, beautiful resurgence of, of the craft of, of healthy farming. Mm-hmm. And so food, food justice 
means literally food for all. And how, how could we not provide food for all? I mean, just the, the simple awareness that every human being's relationship to land is, can be experienced through three times a day through food. And, and for many, that's not possible because of either very unhealthy food or absolute food deserts where there isn't access to enough nutrition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in our many of our cities and in many rural areas, that's definitely changing. And um, I, I think that's among the most exciting things that we can point to uh, as, as movements go in the last decade in the United States. Very, very hopeful, very beautiful. Um, I, uh, I feel like talking with you about uh, your photography and uh, mm. your relationship. How, how does your relationship to your environment, how does it change when you're using a lens and you're actually capturing it in order to share it with us? I guess I'd say that um, right now, I think one of the most transformational things any of us can do is to tell our own story and to be willing and able to hear the story of others. Mm -hmm. And the way I tell my story is through photography. It's the way I, I see the world. So I can go about my day as a farmer or a teacher and, and live it fully, but my, I'm not <laughs> fully realized in that experience until I can, I can speak of it to others, until I can tell the story of it. And I, I somehow think that that's probably at the core of what distinguishes uh, we humans from every other creature is that we have this drive and this capacity to tell the story of our experience and to tell the story of, of others' experience. And uh, I'm not sure how it evolved for me, but uh, the language that I use is pictures, and and I use them in, in talks that I give, I use them in, in books, uh, but I use it every day too, just as a discipline for for seeing things very uh, intensively. So uh, there are times when I w- walk about the farm, and of course I don't have my camera with me, and I and I'm I'm laboring and thinking through the day, and then there are other times when I carry my camera. And I may be doing the same things, but everything slows down and everything becomes much more an act of intense observation. But as with any kind of spiritual practice, it's not done just for my own benefit. I take pictures in order to be able to say something to others. And I think it's the way I express what I find to be really beautiful 
in the world. And I do find lots and lots to be very, very beautiful about this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, your photographs are like friends that you share with other friends. So would you think about a photograph that you have um, have taken and that really tells a story that intensely speaks about your relationship with your environment? Well, there's a there's two that that come to mind. Um, one of it I, I'm I'm holding in my hand right now. It's it's on the back of a of a book that I'm in the process of working on, and it's it, it's two hands, um, the hands of a of an older person, the, the knuckles are large, the, the muscles in between the fingers are pronounced, the wrinkles are, <laughs> are deep, <laughs> and the hands are, are working with a pen on a, on a piece of paper that has dirt on it and, and even a little specks of, of blood perhaps, uh, and there are drawings of, of a building on it. And it's a picture of my friend Bill Copperthwaite, who I introduced to you before, a man in his mid-80s now, a homesteader, a, a, an amazing uh, architect and social critic and homesteader. And he helped, last year, he helped my family and I uh, build a small home on his land in Maine. And while we were in the physical process of, of building a structure that came out of his mind and, and to build it without power tools, we were also celebrating a, a human transition uh, as between generations, as land that he has loved and has sustained him for 50 years begins to shift to a place for my family and I. And so I look at that that photo often, and I think of him and his life and his his care, and I think of all of the health of that place and the beauty and why I'm drawn to it. And I think about what it might be like when I'm gone and my daughter, who is nine, (laughs) is there and she might be my age. And that lineage of human love of place is really, really inspiring to me. I, I think through climate change and loss of species and all the, the changes that are coming our way, if we can maintain that, that lineage of human love of place, then both we and the planet will, will do okay. And that image uh, reminds me of that lineage. Mm-hmm. And the second one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, uh, it, it's a photo that was taken uh, actually of me um, 
on Christmas, or I guess it was the day before Christmas, my family and I had uh, walked up to the top of our, our farm and cut down a small tree that we had been uh, watching and cultivating as a Christmas tree. And, and I, a very simple thing to take that tree with a bow saw and to put a piece of rope around it and to hike out of the woods dragging this small Christmas tree and to cross our pasture. And it was at that point in the pasture that my wife took a picture uh, of me doing just something very simple on our farm, but one that celebrates uh, that connection to place and that that love uh, of of place and love of family. So there are many ways to have a love affair, and we can have love affairs with the earth that we're on. Yeah. Indeed. Not only can we, but we, we need to. Yes. We need to have love affairs. <laughs> yes, yes. So do you feel... Uh, you know, there's this phrase that I underlined, Aldo Leopold said, nothing can be done without creating a new kind of people. So you come across a lot of younger people because you speak in many places, and I'm sure you and you have this, uh, this retreat for uh, young leaders, um, what is it, 18 to 35, uh, do you think a new kind of people is coming up, growing up, like good trees? <laughs> well, I, I really do. I really, really do. Uh, so many of the, the concerns that I have been talking about just in this, this little walk in the woods that we've been doing, mm-hmm. uh, I think arise uh, from observations of, of my own generation and, and the generations uh, immediately around my own. Um, much of the, the siloization, to, I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to try to find a better word, but the, the compartmentalization, yeah, let's call it, of our lives, uh, that I experienced early growing up, I, I don't see as much of in this next generation coming forth. And I see them having a much greater capacity to connect to the land, a much more, even the technology, which is my generation's kind of uh, nemesis, and we think that that it's so bad and and it's the reason younger generations are cut off, even with uh, an embracing of that technology, I I see this generation more closely connected to the land, more willing to take risks, more willing to embrace what the land has to offer as well, um, and less acceptance of traditional forms of, uh, of occupation and careers and things like that, which I think is really, really healthy. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the reason that we created a place here on our own farm to bring leaders together arises completely from the quote that you just read from Aldo Leopold, that I, I do think, you know, as I said before, that we, are, we humans are tuned to relationship and tuned to mm-hmm. relationships with one another, but also and also to the land. Um, the work that we do with older leaders who, you know, are more ingrained and embedded in contemporary American culture when they experience this place, uh, when they're standing at the top of the hill in the morning and, and there's fog filling the valley, there is absolutely more possibility for them to connect to one another because of what they see and because of what they experience. And in a very obvious way, that experience of the land is creating inside of them, not a new person, but it's, it's uncovering the old wise person that is inside of them. And so all we do is, is create the context for these leaders to find that soul mm-hmm. that's there inside of them. And, and we, we do that through a deep experience of the land. We do that through meditation, which is a vehicle also to experience soul and to experience the land. And those forces um, humanize us and, and open us to new possibilities that, that can defy the differences of ideology and race and power and privilege that, that that are so profoundly divisive in the United States of America right now. And I, you know, I, I don't see that just once or twice. I, <laughs> I see that in almost every person that comes through here every, every week of, of every summer of, of every year. And, and that's why we stay at it. Yeah. Yeah. I must come and visit you. So I can I can be with even more of my soul. We we can we would be so honored. We would be so honored. And you know, this is one place. Uh, it's a simple place uh, on a hillside in in Vermont. There there are so many places. In fact, I, I really believe that every place has the potential. Uh, to offer the same sort of experiences to, to human beings. You know, we're, our farm is not uh, out in the middle of nowhere. It's right in the middle of community. I mean, you can hear car alarms going off in, in our village below. We can hear 18-wheelers backing up to deliver food from 3,000 miles away into yeah. the Safeway. You know, we, this is real life. Uh so it's it's not the place that matters as much as the level of human care and attention that's given that place. Beautiful. And it's that relationship. It's that relationship that transforms. And that's why, you know, I, when I was saying before that I think what I've seen 
in in Oakland, California, in central Harlem, New York, in in parts of Atlanta, in, in many places around urban United States is a is a strong strong relationship to land because that care and attention mm-hmm. can be present. Beautiful, beautiful. It's it's been a delightful moment with you, Peter, and. Um, I would like to ask you, take a moment, and what would you like to say in closing to our friends who are listening? Well, I think I would say first and foremost, uh, thank you for everything that you do in your own lives. The mere fact that you're listening to this suggests that You are a seeker and you are someone who values those really most important relationships that are at the core of of everything today. And if we can water those relationships in different ways, then we'll, we'll be okay. We'll do just fine. And there's lots and lots of work to be done always. And there, there are lots of things that are wrong in this troubled world, for sure. But there's also a great deal that's, that's beautiful, and there's a great deal that's waiting for us if we're willing to do um, that nurturing and that, that watering. And, and I thank you for connecting me with uh, more people who might be willing to and able to feel the same way. Good. Thank you, Peter Forbes.